Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Leslie Klinger, co-editor of the new anthology Weird Women, Volume 2, 1840 to 1925, Classic Supernatural Fiction by Groundbreaking Female Writers. Leslie co-edited this anthology with Lisa Morton. In addition, Leslie edited the award-winning The New Annotated Sherlock Holmes, which is three volumes, as well as the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft and many other annotations as well. Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jeff. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new co-edited collection, Weird Women, Volume 2, 1840 to 1925, Classic Supernatural Fiction, the the title says a lot, but yeah. what were you trying to what were what were you trying to do with this collection? Well, this collection started when um I was giving a talk on Frankenstein at the Lilly Library. And they had a whole exhibit on Frankenstein, which was published, of course, in 1818, uh, and its progeny, if you will. Uh and one of the exhibit cases was cleverly titled Weird Women. Uh, by my friend Rebecca Bauman, who was the curator of the exhibit. Uh, and in the in the exhibit case, she had books by mm, a dozen or more women writers of, of the era who had been influenced in one way or another by Shelley. And to my surprise and delight, I'd really never heard of most of them. Um, and I was inspired to do uh, a, an anthology of stories by those women writers and others. Um, reached out to my friend, Lisa Morton, uh, Lisa and I had done, uh, a previous, uh, have known each other for a long time. She's a very accomplished writer of both fiction and nonfiction and, uh, pitched her on the idea. Uh, she liked it and we went to, uh, Claiborne Hancock, Pegasus books, and he liked it. Uh, and so we set out to collect a sampling of some of the remarkable writing, uh, by women. Uh, from primarily from the 19th century, but some early 20th century, uh, that essentially came after Mary Shelley and showing that, uh, not only was she influential, but she, she wasn't alone. She wasn't the only one writing this kind of fiction, uh, that filled a first volume and we had so much material left and the first volume did reasonably well and was critically well received. Uh, we went back to Claiborne and said, would you like a second volume? Um, and he said, sure. So that's where this came from. Um, and this, it's a mixture of ghost stories, weird tales, uh, monster stories, uh, the unexpected. Some of the names in the collection, I think, will surprise people. There are some big names that they didn't realize had written this kind of fiction. Uh, and then there's a lot of people that they never heard of. And so who are some of those big names? Well, I think this collection includes, includes Louisa May Alcott, for example. Um, and, uh, uh, the Bronte sisters wrote this kind of fiction and, and other reasonably well-known writers. What was going on in the 19th century was primarily, first of all, women were doing a lot of writing because it was one of the few means available to support their families. Uh, so they weren't able to take on the jobs that were basically reserved for men. 
Um, so they would write. And in many cases, by the way, you'll see that they published under names that were asexual. So, for example, M.E. Braddon, uh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon, uh, a very successful writer uh, who wrote some supernatural fiction uh, in the midst. But the other thing that's notable, I think, is that like any writer for the 19th century, it wasn't just the women, they didn't confine themselves to what we think of today as a genre. Um, none of these writers would have said that they were horror writers or supernatural writers or whatever. They thought of themselves as writers. Um, they wrote stories that appealed to them. And so, to my great delight, some of the same women appeared in this collection that appeared in my collection called In the Shadow of Agatha Christie, uh, which is 19th century crime fiction by women writers. Um, so they, they wrote what they felt like. And today publishers would have pigeonholed them as genre writers because it's easier to sell that way. But in the 19th century, they were just good writers. So you mentioned this display at this library, um, highlighting, uh, weird women. Some of you, some of them you had never heard of before. What research did you do once you saw that display and decided to work on this collection? Well, I started with the title, with the authors that were in the collection. Some of them did not write short fiction, and so we couldn't use them. But um, there are some good books of history about the writing of weird fiction. And and I want to say that uh, they the scholars have not necessarily overlooked um uh, women writers. They, they just don't get the public attention. Uh, when we think of horror fiction of the 19th century, maybe we think of, uh, Algernon Blackwood, or we think of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Sheridan Le Fanu. Uh, and we don't think about writers like Braddon, uh, or Harriet Spofford, or some of the other prolific, uh, writers of the day who also turned out horror fiction or what we would today call horror fiction. So how did you and Lisa work together as co-editors? Did you come up with, a, a, did you both compile a master list of stories and then you compare yes. notes as to which ones you wanted to, to yes. include? That's exactly what happened. We, we both read widely, um, cast nets out there looking at collections, looking at lists, looking at uh, scholarly books and suggested titles, uh, and read uh, lots of stories. And then picked out our favorites and then shared them with each other. And uh, they're generally, I mean, there was very little disagreement. If she loved a story, I generally loved it too. Um, the, the hard part, again, was trimming the list down to a reasonable size. Uh, there are plenty of writers whose stories we just couldn't include, just didn't have room. Um, so will there be a third volume? I don't know. <laughs> no, actually, there won't be. We're doing a we're doing okay. a genre, uh, a, a more genre oriented book next called Haunted Tales, uh, which is not limited to women writers. But uh, there's so much great 19th century supernatural fiction that I mean, you could do ten volumes um, and not and and still have more. Uh, so many writers that have, that sadly have gone out of style or lost gotten lost in the in the annals of of writing so do you have a favorite story or writer from this collection 
uh, you know, it's kind of like choosing one's, uh, one's favorite, uh, child. Uh, I, I'm fond of all of them. Um, some of them are, uh, I, I'm less inclined toward the ghost stories. I'm more interested in the stories of just sort of the, sort of the woo woo, you know, what was that kind of stories, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, they're all, they're all great. Well, as I mentioned at the outset, you've also written the three-volume new annotated Sherlock Holmes. What led you to working on that annotation project? Well, Sherlock Holmes was my entry point for the 19th century, and that that I can be that I I, I clearly know how I got there. Uh, when I was in law school, um, which was about a thousand years ago, um, I was. I've been an English major undergraduate, so I'd read a lot of the classics, but my recreational reading consisted of almost exclusively science fiction. Uh, I loved science fiction. I read hundreds and hundreds of science fiction, short stories and novels. Uh, and then my girlfriend, first wife, uh, got me a gift of a book called The Annotated Sherlock Holmes by William Baring Gould. This was uh, in my second year of law school. And I was a, uh, I, I was a good student, but I had a rigid rule that from 11 PM to midnight, I permitted myself to read recreational reading, not law cases. And <laughs> so I started reading that book and I had probably read like most people, one or two Sherlock Holmes stories when I was in school, but they really didn't make a big impression on me. Well, this time around, I was dazzled by, uh, Conan Doyle, by the, by the writing but even more importantly, um, the annotated Sherlock Holmes introduced me to the scholarship, to the whole world of amateur Sherlockians who devoted hundreds of hours to analyzing the stories, examining the time period, examining the histories and the social mores and so on. And I just loved it. I loved that whole uh, area of study. And I, I mean, to put it bluntly, I loved the footnotes and, um, I, I thought to myself at the time, gee, maybe someday when I'm old, retired, you know, have nothing else to do with my life, I'll get to be the person who updates this book. That'll be, you know, 50 years from now and the book will need a new edition. Um, and then in the mid nineties, I said to myself, uh, why am I waiting? You know, I have the time to do something like that. And so I started playing around with re-annotating the stories, um, focusing the annotations on a, a collection of subjects. Uh, and annotations just means a bunch of footnotes. So footnotes that explained vocabulary because we don't speak 19th century English, uh, social customs, historical references, um, and Sherlockian scholarship, Sherlockian scholarship, arguing about such things as why does Dr. Watson say that his wound was in his shoulder in some of the stories, but in other stories, it appears to be in his leg, uh, and so on. So that was great fun. I started writing those. And then in 2002, out of the blue, I got a call from the senior editor at Norton who said, you know, that old annotated Sherlock Holmes book. 
we're going to put out a new edition of it. And we hear that you should be the editor. I mean, I fell out of my chair. It was like, (laughs) you know, I'm a lawyer from Los Angeles who's sort of been playing around with this stuff. I had published uh, a few uh, volumes of newly annotated stories, but they were published only for the Sherlockian market, which, you know, means the book sold 300 copies, you know? So, uh, after I grilled uh, the editor and said, you're, you're actually going to pay me, and, you know, all that sort of thing. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be a snap because I've already got this done. No, it turned out they wanted me to rewrite every single footnote, uh, to make it more user-friendly, less in the style that a friend t- dubbed law review. Uh, and, uh, so I did. And the books came out in 2004 and 2005. I was, uh, I was thrilled that I won the Edgar for the first two volumes. Uh, and of course I immediately thought, gee, I'm God's gift to writing. Why have I been, you know, holding back for all those years? <laughs> so, uh, I went back to North. I, I thought I wanted to do this again. I wanted to write more books. So I went back to Norton and I announced to them that my next book was going to be the annotated Dracula. This was a suggestion by my wife, by my second wife, my current wife, Sharon. And, um, they said, Oh, uh, and I said to myself, Oh, maybe I'm not the kind of writer who announces his next book to his publisher. Maybe I have to sell them on this book. <laughs> so I did. Uh, and that came out to a nice, critical reviews and and decent sales uh and that was sort of the launching pad i i began to do other books subsequently i i've done uh, uh the annotated frankenstein the annotated uh, two volumes of hp lovecraft um uh, and uh all for norton uh, i've also done the annotated sandman uh the neil gaiman 78 issue comics uh and the annotated watchman um, uh, Neil and I did, uh, the annotated American gods. Um, uh, I did a volume for, uh, Pegasus called, uh, classic American crime fiction of the 1920s. That was five critically acclaimed novels, um, uh, heavily annotated that one, the Edgar again, I was very excited. Um, uh, and I just turned in, uh, the new annotated to Jekyll and Hyde, which will come out from uh, mysterious press, uh, early next year. That that sounds amazing. I'm I'm curious when you're doing an annotation project, especially the the three volume Sherlock Holmes. That just seems like uh, a daunting project. How do you organize all of the research and what you're doing? Well, first of all, it helped that I was uh, a Sherlockian collector. I mean, I have a vast library of books, and there have been hundreds and hundreds of books written about the Sherlock Holmes stories. In addition, um, for, I'm trying to put a date on this, for probably 70 years, there has been amateur scholarship published in journals such as the Baker Street Journal, the Sherlock Holmes Journal, um, and others. I have a very large library of those journals. Um, and so it was daunting, but, but I had three big advantages over Baring Gould. Uh, number one, there has been subsequently there was after Baring Gould published his book, uh, there was published a bibliography 
by a, a gentleman named Ronald DeWall uh, that listed 25,000 Sherlock Holmes related items. Uh, so I was, that was extremely helpful because the bibliography was organized by story, it was also organized by subject. Uh, and so that was a tremendous uh, value as a roadmap to the scholarship out there in the world, much of which I'd already read but and owned, uh, but some of which I didn't. Uh, second, of course, there's the Internet. Uh, I was writing at a time when the Internet was already uh, up and available, and there is a surprisingly vast amount of Victorian um, material available on the internet, uh, through Google books and other sources of the Hathi trust digital library and so on. Uh, and third, I got to start with Baron Gould. I mean, I took his book and I basically said, gee, if he wrote a footnote about subject X, I probably should write a footnote about that. Um, and I got to start with the research that he'd done and then build upon that. So it was relatively easy to organize. I, I ended up building sort of a procedure where I had a checklist of the 20 reference books that I needed to look at for each and every story. And I went back to those books 60 times, basically, because there's 60 stories. Right. Um, and went through them and combed out the material and used them over and over again. So, you know, I'm a lawyer. I, I'm, I'm organized. Uh, this is the kind of writing that lawyers do. <laughs> so I just... It, you know, some people say, how long did it take to write the book? I say, well, 37 years, you know, because that's when I started. But turned out Dracula didn't take 37 years. Uh, right. So why do you think Sherlock Holmes has endured and is still so popular as a character? That's a, that's a fascinating question, Jeff, because I think the answer differs from reader to reader. One, one of the great virtues of the stories is their plasticity, or the characters in particular, the plasticity. Uh, in the sense that we can take Sherlock Holmes and we can move him to the 21st century. We can move him to the 22nd century. Uh, we can move him to uh, another country. Uh, and the, the characters work. Uh, we can tell interesting stories about the characters in those places and times uh, with just as much panache and, and uh, vitality as setting them in Victorian England. Um, that, that really helps. But I think Holmes represents in many ways our, our aspirations. First of all, I, I like to say that he's a superhero without a spider or he's a, he's, he's an attainable superhero. You, we kind of think that if we just worked hard enough, um, if we were just smart enough, we could be like Sherlock Holmes. Um, we don't have to find that spider to bite us. We don't have to be born in Krypton. We just have to be observant and think clearly about things. So that's appealing. Um, I think that he stands for the things that we would like to believe we stand for, uh, the right side of things, not necessarily law enforcement. He never identifies himself as working for the police. He's on the side of justice. And aren't we all? I mean, you know, who... Who doesn't want to be on the right side of justice? Um, so I think that those characteristics of Holmes have a tremendous appeal to us. But I think if we're honest, we don't really want to be Sherlock Holmes. We want to be Dr. Watson. We want to 
be somebody who hangs around with a Sherlock Holmes and gets to share in his adventures. Um, cause Holmes himself can be kind of prickly, uh, right. and, and, and we're much nicer than that. Dr. Watson, on the other hand, is, uh, courageous, um, intelligent and, uh, and somebody who gets to hang around with Holmes. Sure. Um, I'm curious, uh, have, do you read much, uh, Sherlock Holmes pastis stories or novels? No. Um, I don't, I, I have a few friends who are wonderful writers in that genre, Nicholas Meyer, Bonnie McBird. Um, I will read their books, uh, because, because they asked me to, um, but I generally don't care for that sort of thing. Uh, I I'd rather go back and read the originals again, uh, than try and read somebody else's sort of imitation. I, I understand the urge I've written, um, uh, my own pastiche. I, I, I wrote a short story that, uh, was reasonably nicely accepted, uh, that was a Sherlock Holmes story sort of got it out of my system. Uh, but, uh, no, I'd rather not read pastiche. I'd rather read critical material. And I have so many other projects that I'm working on that I, I, there's a vast quantity of Sherlockian, uh, pastiche. Sure. Um, and, and it just doesn't appeal to me. So got it. I'm curious, you mentioned the annotated Jekyll and Hyde. Are there other annotation projects on your, on your list that you're working on or plan to work on? Well, there's, it, this is unfortunately, uh, a matter of convincing the publisher. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yes, I have a long list of projects that I would <laughs> love to work on and that I've sort of in some way gathered material and started, uh, I, I've, I've pitched them to publishers. You have to convince them that they're actually going to sell well, Jeff, this is, a. Uh, these darn publishers who, you know, want to make money off of, off sure. their books. They don't see this as art. They see it as commerce. So I have pitched, uh, and, and sort of started to gather the materials for, uh, an annotated edition of war of the worlds, uh, an annotated edition of a novel that is not particularly well known, uh, called the lodger, uh, by uh, Marie, uh, Belloc Lowndes. It's a, novel published in 1911 that is essential it was made into a film by hitchcock uh it's essentially a story about jack the ripper um and i'd love to cover the ripper in great detail and write a lot of notes about the ripper um you know there are other dream projects out there that i'll never get to do i i talked to the tolkien estate about doing the annotated lord of the rings my all-time favorite book Uh, they said no Tolkien left clear instructions, didn't want that to happen. Uh, I actually pitched the Douglas Adams estate to do an annotated Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Um, I thought it would be great fun, and I actually wrote a sample chapter for them. Uh, The footnotes, of course, had to be parodies. They're they're essentially (laughs) parodies of Les Klinger's footnote styles. Uh, so in-depth discussions of the galactic gargle blaster cocktail, for example, and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of projects out there, uh, that we've talked about picture of Dorian Gray is a distinct possibility. Uh, but, uh, sort of, I, I have to do these always one book at a time. Uh, I finish book, the book I'm working on, and then I start begging publishers to do the next one that interests me 
And eventually I convinced them to do it. So. Well, um, can you, can you succinctly explain the situation with kind of the, the legal status of the Sherlock Holmes stories? Because I know that you sure. have been involved in that. And yes, if I'm indeed. not mistaken, the, the remaining 10 stories go into public domain this, uh, this next year, 2022. Is that correct? No. Uh, no. first of okay. all, there are only six stories that remain in copyright. So let okay. me, let me start by being clear. Sure. Uh, outside the United States. All 60 stories that Conan Doyle wrote about Sherlock Holmes are in the public domain, meaning they are not protected by copyright. In the United States, six of the stories remain in copyright uh, because of the dates of publication. Uh, anything published after 19, worked in 1924 now, uh, is in the public domain. The, the copyright period is 95 years after the date of publication. So actually we're past 1994 to 2024 up to 2025. So the last two stories were published in 1926 and 1927. Um, so the public domain takes effect at the end of the year of publication. So the last couple stories were published in 1927. 95 years is 2022, so by 2023, all of the stories will be free of copyright. So the litigation that I was involved in back in 2014, which went to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, was a, a case in which the Conan Doyle estate, which is a company owned by collateral relatives of Conan Doyle, uh, they attempted to argue that because any of the stories remain protected by copyrights, they were entitled to limit or require that people who wanted to write new stories about Sherlock Holmes uh, had to get a license from the Conan Doyle estate. Uh, Lori King and I, who were doing um, anthologies of new stories, said, that's baloney. Um, what does it mean at that time that 50 stories are in the public domain if it doesn't mean you can use the material in those stories? So we went to court, um, we won, we won at every level, uh, and the court ultimately uh, praised us for having brought the case. They said we were like private attorney general uh, and called the Conan Doyle estate people extortionists uh, for having tried to squeeze creators to pay them for licenses that they didn't have to pay for. So what the court established was that if you use character elements that only appear in the copyrighted stories, then you have to get a license. Otherwise, you're free to use the characters. So since everything that you or I could think of about Sherlock Holmes appears in those 50 public domain stories, essentially creators were free to make up new stories about Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Watson, Mrs. Hudson, etc. Gotcha. Well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your annotations and this new collection that you co-edited? A uh, cleverly titled website, lesliesklinger.com. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Leslie Klinger, co-editor of the new anthology Weird Women, Volume 2, 1840 to 1925. 
classic supernatural fiction by groundbreaking female writers. The novel is, I mean, the collection is available now, so go buy a copy. And Leslie, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Great. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.